Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 314, recorded December 13th, 2022. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Ockin. And it's just us this time. Very nice to be together to share some fun Python news. Yeah, we got some good stuff. I think we do. Why don't you kick it off? But before you do, actually, real quick, I just want to say thank you to Microsoft for Startups for sponsoring this show. I'll tell you more about them later. Go. Nice. Well, first up, we've got something from Will McCougan. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, um, but he's got this cool project called Factory, F-A-Q-T-O-R-Y, Factory, cute joke. Um, but it's a it's a tool to generate an FAQ page, uh, a markdown page specifically for a, a you know, GitHub project or something. I mean, you could use it for anything, really. Um, but it's what one of the fun things about it is it uses it itself. So you can, I mean, not it. it there's an example there, but the questions are fun. So uh, the idea is uh, is you've got a lot of questions maybe that come in about your project and you want to answer, you know, mm -hmm. keep track of them. Um, so what you do is you stick um, you stick your questions in a question directory, and then uh, and then they're they're like just these little markdown snippets. And uh, they're, let's look at a, the raw format. It's just like this just title. There's a title block and then some, some and that's the question. And then some, uh, maybe some information. You can cite things maybe. Um, it's, it's really um, pretty easy. I'm going to go actually to the readme again to, to, to talk about that. Cause it's You're not going to go to the FAQ? <laughs> oh, yeah, we could. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just the, I, I wanted to make sure that we talked about alt titles. So you had, you have a title for a question and then an alt title maybe um, for different kinds of questions that are really the same question. And then an answer. That's the simple form of what to do in these little markdown files, um, these little question files. And then you just use do factory build. And what it does is takes all those and creates a uh, markdown page. Um, and then you can see what it looks like on their, the, uh, the faq.md in this project but it's nice it's got frequently asked questions at the top it's got links to all the questions and then um and then you you know you you go down and you can see what the answer is yeah even um, like a table of contents with yeah. um the hash you know the hash inner page navigation within github which is interesting right yeah well, that is interesting and um links to each question so if you want to like email somebody a, a link to it you can uh -huh. link to the question uh which is nice um I, there's some funny ones in there as examples just correct me up i got to bring them up like uh in fact most frequently asked questions have never and perhaps will never be asked and then a quote 89 percent of statistics are made up on the spot <laughs> uh, these are these are pretty funny uh yeah. but in it's kind of cool and that's not all it so you generate it this would be enough actually if it just generated this faq page it might be uh worthwhile uh taking a look at but it also has um templates so it builds like a template so that you can have like um a dot faq in the dot faq there's templates and you can tweak these to have a different you know it's a a different look to them if you want you can add some more code um oh, nice and then uh and then there's this suggestion, which we got to talk about these suggestions because it has a template for what to do on a suggestion. And why this is important is um, it comes with this this hook that you can put into um, into GitHub Actions. So there's a there's a built-in uh, thing with actions that you can suggest something. If so, if you suggest a question, it tries to figure out what the question might be using some like fuzzy 
uh, what does it say? Uh, fuzzy matching or something, um, which is kind of a neat idea. And then uh, there's an example right in there. Um, let's see, work GitHub workflows. Uh, you can look at the new issues and it's calling this factory. So if somebody asks, files an issue that's really just a question and it figures out that there's something it can answer with, it'll answer for you. Um, so if you get, if you have, you know, I don't have any projects that have that many issues, but I'm sure Will does. Um, and some people do have like these huge projects and having a little thing that goes, hey, this question's already in the FAQ or something similar, just go look there. Um, or here's the answer, maybe. Uh, that's pretty cool. I haven't tried this, but looks like fun. I think that's that's really excellent. Even for my limited small number of small projects, I still get things like, have you considered this? Or why is it different than that? It seems like it's the same. It's not the same. It's similar. It's not the same. Here's the huge long discussion on the issue that somebody filed that's closed because we're not resolving it and we don't leave it as an open issue. But you go look in the closed issues and you'll see the discussion and you can participate there, right? That kind of just point them in the right direction. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff like this. I actually talked with Ned Batchelder last week, seven days ago, it says, on an episode that's coming out on TalkPython called Tools for ReadMe Creation and Maintenance. Oh, yeah. As well as FAQs and change logs and, and those sorts of things. Remember, I did a shout out for give me all the tools for readmes on here. And so this yeah. is the episode we ended up doing because like three of the tools out of the eight or nine we covered were written by Ned. We're like, we should just I should just have Ned on the show because it seems <laughs> like he's a major topic here. Nice. Anyway, um, there's a lot of other tools that do that. But what I think is relevant here is this automation and this suggest Feature. This is what makes it really stand out as being different. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna even on some of my small projects, I'm gonna go ahead and turn it on and then probably issue questions myself <laughs> and play with it and see see how it works. Yeah, um, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Steve in the audience uh, what's the answer to what's the difference between a duck? I must know. What's the difference? Oh, it's <laughs> an FAQ, yeah. <laughs> we'll put it on the FAQ, Steve. We'll we'll help you out there. Yeah. All right. Shall we go off to the next one? Yes. All right. So way back. And let's see, Python bytes. You know, we have, a, we have a pretty cool search engine here. Um, search for Kagi, live with it. Way back here, uh, we had when we had Gina Huska on the show. I talked about this Kagi thing. Yeah, where was it? Right, like a paid uh, search thing. Yeah, there it is. That was suggested by Daniel. We, I said, you know, look, I'll I'll give this a try and I'll give you all a report. That was in June. Well. It's December now, so maybe not just one month, which was my idea. But I finally got around to writing up a report on Kagi and you know TLDR. I'm still using it. I still really like it. So for those of you who don't have a six month perfect memory of the extras, I don't don't doubt that it's you know faded. Kagi is a paid search engine that is super privacy respecting and very customizable. So instead of being the product you can pay for a product, which is search, which is pretty rare, actually, right? There's not many others that do that. So what I did is I went through and um, did uh, a little write up here. And the it's really kind of the, the what are my thoughts on this? Why did I go through this whole process? But I, I entitled it paying for search in 2022. Am I crazy? Which I don't know, we'll, we'll see. So um, some of the highlights of the things, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I laid out some of the reasons I think it matters, like surveillance capitalism is net, net bad for society. That is you being the product by being tracked 
and having all of that information tracked across different sources, grouped together and resold through data brokers, not good. Most search engines, that's their business, right? Which is not yep. great, right? Um, and also if you support small companies, we all win, right? Even if you don't use it, if people are supporting small companies. We have many choices. There's just, right, there's just more choice, right? We don't, nobody wants a world where there's like one giant or two giant tech companies that make all the decisions. Um, and search happens to kind of live in that intersection of all of these things, right? So when you go to do search, uh, you know, you're kind of supporting some giant tech company, but at the same time, you're also being tracked and resold and it's just, I, I classified it as like some things are on the neutral good side, like DuckDuckGo, like they're mostly good, but there's also that sneaky behind the thing, scenes thing with like, like only Microsoft can track our users. No one else can. Um, we won't talk about it. A uh, link to that. Others fully on the dark side, right? So uh, a link to an article about how to retarget your customers. Um, so just some of the the highlights here for Kagi is it's totally privacy respecting because you pay for it, right? There's no ads which don't lead to these in, uh, perverse incentives or these counter incentives. One of the things I really like is you can block websites. Like I just unblocked all the things that I had previously blocked and I did a search for HTML, uh, for div tag event. What was the first result? W3 schools. I don't know. Do you ever run across W3 schools? Do you like this? Yes. No. That and there's a few. There's a few of these that are just they just turn out yeah. questions and answers. You're just like, could I, this just stop? Could I just never? Like, how are they so good at SS, SEO and so bad at answers? Right. And so for those um, things, you could there's like a little uh, globy looking icon looking thing next to this, and you can press it and just say block. I will never ever see W3 schools. Now some people may have extensions there's like a w3 school blocker <laughs> extension you can get for chrome and other browsers but i also really don't want to install like any more extensions in my browser than necessary there's plenty of examples of like oh this extension became unmaintained and so some company bought it and put some you know tracking yeah. into it so not only your search is tracked everything you do ever is like now report right like i just don't want to install those things it's just not worth it but here you can just say block these four or five domains or just lower them if you kind of want them to sort yeah oh you you muted how did i mute sorry um check this out brian if you do a search for cnn see how this globe turns reddish orange yeah just in the search results this is on kagi right on the right next to it and you're like wait a minute why is it red if you go over to it it has a big red warning. there you can click it it'll give you more information it has a big red warning there's 43 trackers detected on this page so if you click on it you're getting 43 trackers put on you it's like jump like that pool is full of leeches don't go in it you're, huh. you're gonna go in it warning and it even gives you the categorization of it has fingerprinting advertising has google as a tracking category and email isn't that nuts and cool yeah i mean cool it tells you not cool that it is yeah but then like just to be fair things like vivaldi and stuff can block most of that stuff right yes exactly and so if you want to block it you can right certainly you should be blo blocking it uh i think but Anyway, it's also nice that the search engine is kind of like got your back in that regard. Like, you know, here, here's, yeah. this so is I have the, a question. the category of the site. Yeah. So are the results good though? That is a super important question because if they're not, then it, all this doesn't matter, right? Right. Um, I would say they're pretty close to Google. I'm pretty sure that the cost, which is $10 a month, I think the cost mostly, because that's that can't be compute. There's just no way that it costs that much. I think the results are... Um, they're i'm pretty sure they're buying search as a service from google and bing okay i haven't been able to verify it but there's they talk about enhancing their search results with open source and uh, um, other results so it's like 
we've got those results plus you know what i mean yeah and so as far as i can tell they're pretty it's quite similar to google actually i think but with the extra might... features that block be able to block sites you don't ever want to see so that's cool exactly yeah so here's the the follow-up to live with it kagi I give it a, a solid thumbs up. The only, really the only downside is that it costs money. Are you interested in paying another subscription, another $10 a month for something? For me, it makes me happy. Every I search for stuff just constantly all day. And every time I'm like, yep, still not being tracked. Feels pretty good. And so for me, it's worth it. Uh, people can can decide. All right. Well, um, I got to say, uh, this is a random comment from uh, uh, Vincent. Um, is, I don't know how I... I don't know how to read this. Once again, I'm rocking my baby to sleep. And once again, y'all voices aid me in doing so. So we're so boring. You're putting your kid to sleep. I'm not sure what, how to <laughs> No, Yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway. No, that's awesome. Hey, yeah. Vincent, great to have you here. As somebody who had one of those baby carriers when I had twins, I would hook them both on me and I would sit there and, and like work on my keyboard because like in the middle of the night because they would sleep if they were stuck to me, but not if I was like trying oh, to lay yeah. them down. Yeah. Oh, God, nice. no. So Ho hopefully we're just I, I feel you, I feel you Vincent. Vincent. Yeah. Oh, a newborn. He has a newborn, so they're not listening anyway. They're just our voices. So, or, cool. or are they? And are they going to grow up to know Python by the time they're five? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and and know how to properly uh, protect themselves against search engines. That's right. That's right. All right, Brian. Before we move on, let me uh, tell folks about our sponsor, uh, Microsoft for Startups. You know, Microsoft for Startups has been a, a great support of the show. And it's really good to have them on board, making sure that we can keep this going strong. You know what they they don't have in this ad, by the way, Brian? Retargeting. We don't have any retargeting for you. So I'm sorry about that, but you do have some really great offers if you go visit it. If you start a business, obviously it's hard to get started. Um, a lot, 90% or more businesses go out of business within the first year. And so Microsoft for startups set out to understand what are some of the challenges and what are some of the assets that they can bring to bear to help that. So Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub was created and it has a bunch of free resources or once you're accepted into the program, a lot of included resources that are just given to you. And they come in two categories. They come in a bunch of cloud credits so you can run your infrastructure and code for no money out of, you know, probably for free for a couple of years. And they also come in the form of mentorship and connections and information. So you get a bunch of free GitHub um, credits, you get a bunch of Microsoft cloud credits. You get many from OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development as well. And it's also not just about who you know, like it is so often for companies out there on their own. You get access to their mentorship network and giving you access to a pool of hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines like idea validation, fundraising, management, coaching, sales, and marketing. That's definitely an important one, as well as a bunch of specific technical aspects. So you can even book a one-on-one -on -one meeting with these mentors, many of whom are founders themselves. So make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Visit pythonbytes.fm slash foundershub2022. The link is in your show notes. Thank you, Microsoft, for supporting the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, is it time to rewrite some code, Brian? Yeah, we. This was fun. So I ran across an article called uh, "Tools for Rewriting Python Code" by Luke Plant, and it's um um uh, also like by the way, it's a kind of a gorgeous uh, blog formatting. It looks like a book almost, but anyway, beside the point. 
we've covered a lot of these things, uh, these tools on the podcast, things like black and iSort and, and linters and things like that. But it's kind of fun to see them, uh, a whole bunch of things listed together. So what by rewriting, we mean like hopefully uh, tools that change your code, but hopefully for the better. Um, so we've got things like formatting, formatting and style guides like uh, black and um Another popular one is that I don't know if we've covered is YAPF um, or yet another Python formatter, I think. Um, and it's uh, it's similar ethos to black, but it's more customizable. So black, you can't, there's only a few options, but uh, YAPF is often used by companies that have their own style guide to be able to customize it. So, you, it, But it's a little more tweaky. So you have to kind of get in there and uh, uh, set it up so that it follows your style guide. So there's that. There's auto pep eight. I sort, which I really like, which reorders Python imports. Um, and uh, so there's uh, things like this uh, table format. I have to play with this. It makes it easy to align columns in your Python source code. I kind of want to try this out because it's um, that's something I don't like about uh, black and other formatters sometimes as they muck up my tables. But anyway, um, there's upgrade things like PyUpgrade and Flint. You've mentioned Flint a couple times. I'm a big fan of Flint. Uh, I run it on Python Bytes website code on TalkPython on the training site, and it's it's great. Yeah. And actually, I just got a pull request uh, on one of my projects, and I'm pretty sure they just ran Flint over. They're just going through <laughs> and finding some projects and doing running Flint and then doing PRs against them. And I was slightly kind of annoyed by that, but also like, yeah, I didn't have to do it. So yeah, thanks. I, I grabbed it. Um, <laughs> Uh, type hints, which I'm I didn't know about this stuff, so I'm I'm kind of have to look at this. So uh, things like pyannotate and monkey type um, to add, and there's a few others to add type hints to your. This is code? super interesting. Adding type hints based on instrumented test suite runs. So instrumented meaning it watches what functions get called, and it says, "Hey, this parameter was always a string. This one was always a user object. So here's your type parameter: colon string, colon user." That's awesome. Yeah. Have you ever? And then I guess you. No, could I, I need to do this. Try it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna try these. There's a few of them. Um, uh, so anyway, interesting. Um, some refactoring stuff is a uh, uh, that I it mostly talks about um, how a lot of these refactoring tools are built into IDEs. And I'll have to say when I'm I usually use an IDE assisted thing like PyLance or PyWrite to to uh, to do some refactoring. But and I actually don't use them as much as I probably should. Um, usually do manual refactorings, but anyway, and then some standalone ones like rope and Jedi. And then, uh, and then so the other category, uh, includes, um, things like shed, which, um, which I still have yet to try out and to try that, that combines a whole bunch of the tools. But the, the part that one of the parts that I was really excited about is I didn't know about lib CST. Um, so talks about, uh, this article talks about writing your own. There's a, a project called lib T lib CST that apparently you can use to um, to write your own. Uh, you does a, a syntax tree thing, and uh, uh, and you can hopefully write your own reformatter. So that might be fun. Okay, nice. And one of the recommendations is um, the the documentation is a little overwhelming for libcst. So maybe uh, use GitHub uh, or libraries.io to find other projects that are using it and then see how they're using it. Uh, and I love that uh, way to understand how to use something. Yeah, like, I, I need pretty much what this does, but I want to change these two things. Let me copy that and go. Yeah, yeah. I guess that'd be another way to do it. It's like fork black, like the, the people that forked black and made blue, which gotta love blue. 
uh, wasn't listed here, but um, oh, one of the things I wanted to to bring up while we're right here is uh, there's um, what there's uh, upgrades like Pi Upgrade and Flint. Um, there was one of them that does um, setup Pi Upgrade, which upgrades setup.py to setup.cfg. I'd really like someone to figure out how to take all of your setup stuff and create a pyproject.toml file. Yes. Um, that'd be yes. Neat, so. That would be excellent. Anyway. Cool stuff. Set up, set up pie Tomal or something. <laughs> yeah, set up Tomal, top pie. Okay, cool. Yeah, this looks really. Well. It's a really nice taxonomy of ways to clean up your code, improve your code, modernize your code. Yeah, yeah, very cool. All right, let's go talk some web for a minute. Uh, Zero, who I know listens to the show because sometimes drops into the live chat and gives some uh, advice or, or feedback, created this thing called Socketify.py. So Socketify, I suppose the name is inspired by trying to do web sockets really well, but it's a little more general web framework and server, as far as I can tell. So the well, tagline or whatever is bringing web sockets, HTTPS high-performance servers for PyPy3. That's the JIT version of Python. Python 3, as well as CPython. So what's the, the website say for us? So it's it's pretty interesting. Um, it's If you look through here, you'll see, uh, I guess we can see some of the features. It has um, WebSocket support with PubSub, fast HTTPS. I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that people care about. It runs on all the, the versions. So, you know, think kind of micro WSGI or UVicorn or something like that with a little bit of, flask type of stuff on top of it okay okay um it has url routing sync and async functions so it's it's kind of a, a mix of like a web server that is also uh, a web framework uh hmm. fast tls uh what else we got here this one's interesting for the async story is max back pressure max payload and timeouts one of the problems that can happen if you have async code is your async code will just accept the request and it'll forward it on through an, an await some database call or await some microservice other API call and it can just way pile up on your server and then like slam the database. And you might say, look, we only want to have you know 20 database queries in flight at a time, right? So you can limit how much pressure the web server is putting onto the database and it'll kind of slow it down and say, instead of accepting more requests or doing more of this work, just you know, queue up the response like a, a non-async web server would do. Okay. Uh, it has async support, uh, ASGI web server support uh, with extensions for Falcon, which is uh, one of the web frameworks, as well as a WSGI WSGI one. And some new features coming. But the real selling point, the reason people might care to check this out is the performance. So Falcon is pretty fast. UVicorn is pretty fast. But if you look at Socketify, uh, I talked to Ciro and um, they're using the Tech Empower benchmarks. I'll pull those up in a second. In fact, I'll just pull them up now. So over here on Mastodon says, um, follow up. We break a new record for Python. No other web frameworks able to reach 6.2 million requests per second in the Tech Empower benchmarks. This puts Python in the same ballpark as Golang, Rust, and C++. So we pull this up. What do we get? We get waiting. Ironic, isn't it? Waiting on the... <laughs> but look at this. You've got Socketify at uh, 6.2 million requests per second on the Tech Empower benchmark, and then Vibora and Gibranto. And what's really interesting is like down here at 10, we have 360,000 for UVicorn, but follow me down here, there's a couple of interesting ones. Pyramid, go Pyramid, I love Pyramid. Python Bytes, Stock Python or Pyramid at the moment. 
at a quarter million. Uh, we make our way down, 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 down. Async flask is at 57,000. Um, straight flask is at 8,000. And let's see, we've got tornado at 40,000. Here's another one at 50,000 for a tornado. Turbo gears at 70. Another one at 90. And there's some variations on like some of the internal, like is it Pi Pi versus C Python versus whatever. There's a bunch of variations in here. But there's a some some surprises there, huh? Yeah. Huh. So so here's the trade-off you gotta make. You gotta decide, right? Like this this framework is cool. It's quite new with 230,000 stars, but it looks also quite promising. So for most people, you might not need something like this. Uh, it's kind of a low level, lower level programming uh, yeah. than say um, your standard Flask, right? And it doesn't have as many extensions, but it also, it has some, I mean, if, if you get that kind of performance and you need it, right, here's a pretty cool option you could try out. So anyway, I, I encourage people to have a look at it. It looks pretty interesting. It's also quite new, you know, last uh, commit six six days ago. So that's that's encouraging, right? Yeah, and also one of the things I like about projects like this that the you know are uh, I'm assuming they're doing something different to make things faster than you know that's think outside the box do do something a little bit different than everybody else mm -hmm. is doing. Um, other people pay attention, so the people that are there, you know. Um, these other frameworks are paying attention to what's going on here and uh, and everybody learns from each other. So um, having a speed up in one area, uh, maybe maybe we can have somebody that take this and, and make the interface as easy to work with as like FastAPI or Flask or something. And, yep, absolutely. And or uh, get some of the learnings from here and build those into the other frameworks as well. So um, uh, yeah, maybe not uh for everything you're doing but if if you have like some project that's that's some part or some part of your project that needs to be super high speed um this is a good thing to take a look at yeah absolutely i agree so put it in the interesting category and uh congrats zero on some pretty high-end performance there yeah nice well i think that's it for all of our items isn't it our main ones yeah i got a what couple extras wanna, yeah throw to, them in to, um yeah so let's um i, I was I was actually going to cover this, but I think it's a little early. So it's a project called Mousebender um, uh, from Brett Cannon. And uh, the idea is, I think, uh, is around producing and consuming. It says produce and consume dependency lock files for Python. And there's some uh, goals for the project um, about um, uh, this project ho it hopes to eventually provide a way to create reproducible inst installations for virtual in a virtual environment from a lock file. And so there's a lot of stuff going on here, but it's a little early in the project. So um, I'm, I just want to point this out. And I, if people really care about packaging, uh, maybe watch this. I'm going to be, I care about it. So I'm going to be watching this project and see if there's anywhere where I can contribute possibly. Um, anyway, mouse bender uh, looks interesting. Uh, I don't think it's ready to use for anything yet, but, um, but yeah, it sounds, it looks a little interesting. Yeah, it does. Yeah, nice work, Brett. Um, and I think I got this from Brett too, but I can't remember. Um, there's a there's there's a page called um, at devguide.python.org versions. We've got um, status of Python versions and a graphic for all the release cycles. That's so cool. And we'll need to see this graphic. This is cool. Yeah, and uh, it's neat because it shows you all the old end of life ones um, and how long they've been. You know, uh, end of life for. 2.6 was back in 2013 so 
what are you guys doing? If you're still they using that, they should put that? like a, a skull and crossbones on the two seven <laughs> and two six one or something. Um, but so you've got a whole bunch in end of life. You got some in the security zone, which means if there's security fixes, they'll add those. Um, and then, uh, but then they get like it. You only got like six months left of uh three seven. So if you're still using three seven, it might be a good time to to upgrade. But it shows all the um. You know, the only one that with feature is uh, 312 right now, because that's the one that's being worked on. Um, and uh, it's kind of a neat visual. Uh, this page is pretty simple, too. And and at the bottom, you've got you know, more specifics of when things are end of life. But um, at the bottom, uh, the description of what all these mean. So what does feature versus uh, end of life mean? Things. Mm-hmm. It's a good, good thing. Neat. Yeah, that's cool. I switched our website to run 311, by the way. Oh, nice. Yeah, like a week ago. It's still running, so that's good. It seems like yeah, it's I switched some of our test code at work to to flip to three eleven and and uh, uh, one of my team members says oh, I wonder if we're ready and I'm like oh yeah we've already switched so um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> we've had a few it's been doing it for a while <laughs> so uh, right. do you have any extras uh, of course so I thought this would be the only thing that I would refer, refer back to my website for but then that write up I did on Kagi I'm gonna try to do a video version of that Kagi live with it thing. Um, but I ended up realizing that that was going to take way more time than I have this week. So I just wrote it up. But another one I, I wrote up, people can just check this out, is uh, sometimes you should build it yourself. Um, em- embracing your not, you're not built here. Maybe we should just build it. I know we could buy it, but let's build it. Uh, sort of talking about some of the things uh, I did at Talk Python as well as Python Bytes and like how um, sometimes you sort of get into this cascade of things where new possibilities arise, right? So for example, one of the parts that says integrations abound. So for our live stream, right? We have our live stream here on YouTube at the moment, and then it becomes the podcast. It says, because the way we I put all this stuff together is not only do we do our live stream, but I push a button on the stream deck that announces this on Twitter, announces that on Mastodon, on Mastodon, puts the website into live stream mode, but then that platform will you know, Python Bytes will take the the YouTube live stream, grab its carefully crafted thumbnail, pull that down to actually become the social share image. So if somebody shares the episode on Mastodon or Twitter, all the way back to the thing we did with the live stream is actually already producing the wow. the image. And so just it just talks about like, you know, sometimes, because I always have had this tendency, like, well, don't build it yourself, find something that works, find something that's out there and you have to break down and build it yourself. And I'm like, you know what? There's actually some really cool stuff that we've been able to accomplish as we built it ourselves. So here's a kind of a, an essay on that, I would say. Nice. Yeah, so people can check that out. Also, back to the live with it side of things. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to support smaller companies and be less just uh, integrated into like one big tech giant. So for my personal email, I've got a domain, um, mkennedy.tech is what I went with which redirects to my other one for my blog. But um, then that was hosted on Gmail on like a paid $6 a month uh, email, docs, whatever. And I just got really tired of trying to juggle two Gmail accounts, two Google Drive accounts, two Google calendars, you know, all these things. I'm like, why am I doing this? Why don't I get a dedicated cool place that is like even a little more on the privacy side as well? So I'm trying to try and go all in on um, Proton. Do you have a Proton account? Do you use this? I don't. Well, for a long time, it was just email. And like, you could have like a proton.me or a proton.com or whatever. But I realized recently that they have other uh, features where um, 
if you pay $7 a month, you get access to all of their things like their calendar and drive and VPN, but that doesn't matter to me. But you get three custom domains and 15 email addresses plus catch all email addresses and uh, hide my email aliases. Oh, so nice. I can have all of my different domains all have email addresses and that all basically resolve back to my personal email. Ooh, cool. Isn't that cool? And so I was at Google and I just changed the MX records and now I'm at Proton. And if I like it, I'll stay here. If not, I'll change my MX records again and I'll be somewhere else. But, you know, kind of trying to take control of the email. So it's my thing, not something at gmail.com, no matter what you think about it, right? Yeah. So anyway, uh, people can check that out. I, I just want to mostly point out Proton looks like it has more to offer than it used to. And how about uh, like support? Can you just use your, I mean, to the, like uh, use your normal email client to, to access all this stuff? Or? Uh, so Proton is like end-to-end encryption, which is a little tricky, but they have, what is it? It's called um, Proton Bridge. So uh, let's go to the mail thing. So this is it. So what you can do is you can run this thing on Mac or Windows or Linux, and it's like a little, you connect basically localhost for your email client, for your email server, and it talks to Proton with the end-to-end encryption, and then it just does IMAP and the last you, I don't know. It's not even the not even the last step of the network, right? It's just it's a loopback. And so, yes, you can connect your your usual things to with that. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, another quick one. There was a court in Germany that um, stand on the kind of the same theme that decided that uh, Google Fonts usage of Google Fonts, like if you look at a lot of web pages, they'll, they'll internally have slash slash fonts.google.com, some like open whatever, right? Some some font name and like the the weights of it. That exchanges a bunch of cookies and tells Google about the visitors. <laughs> Yay. And of course. so, of course it does. Because <laughs> even the YouTube thumbnail picture does. Uh, why wouldn't it? So um, Bunny, bunny.net, which is the awesome CDN that we were I talked about a couple times ago, a couple episodes ago. They released this thing called Bunny Fonts. And so Bunny Fonts is epic. They even talk about like this, uh, this court ruling and uh, GDPR and stuff. But the idea is it's a... Um, the bunny fonts is a drop-in placement for Google, uh, Google fonts for Google fonts. Yeah. So whatever URL you would put into your website to get the fonts from Google, you just change the word Google to bunny. Wow. That's and really then, a drop-in. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's the same API as just, you change the word and you get like super fast CDN backed zero privacy leaking fonts. So you just, it's super <laughs> easy to adopt, right? It's pretty cool. So, uh, not zero privacy, high privacy. Yeah, high privacy. Yeah, zero privacy leaking. Yeah. Okay. Zero privacy trade-offs or whatever. Where's their, uh, here we go. Here's their fonts. But anyway. Come back that's cool. This. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah, so um, super it's easy. It's a bunny. I mean. Uh, you don't even have to have an account. And it's a cute bunny. I mean, they're bunny. Their they're, uh, iconography is really, really good. So there's a place where you go pick the font. So you can come over here and say, I'm interested in uh, Homa or, I don't know, whatever. I don't even know a font. Let's say you're interested in this one. And you could just like say, I want to add it. And it gives you like the little the little URL, which is just fonts.bunny instead of uh uh instead of the Google one. So yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. Anyway, Thanks. that's all I got for my extras. Well, that's great. Um yeah. Good stuff. Uh, all right. I have a joke for you. Oh, let's do a joke. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. You've heard of chat GPT, I'm sure. I'm oh, trying to in. not I hear about out, it. So I know I've, I've, I logged out so I could uh, specifically um, show the homepage. So I, I got to get back. Anyway, ChatGP, I'm trying to not hear about it as well. My brother actually shared this with me. Him and his son, my nephew, were playing with it, doing some coding stuff. <laughs> Somehow they ran across this example. 
So this is a tweet from someone else that he shared with me. Riley, the tweet is not my brother. Um, it says, OpenAI's new chat GPT explains the worst case timing complexity of the bubble sort algorithm. Okay, so what you can do is you can say, give me a step-by-step -step analysis of the worst case time complexity of the bubble sort algorithm with Python code examples, right? So that, wow. I mean, that's, that's not a joke, right? That's helpful. It could tell you, yeah. here's the situation, and it could like show you with Python code examples. But the next part makes it awesome. Give me the explanation with Python code examples, but write every sentence in the speaking style of a fast-talking wise guy from a 1940s gangster, 1940s <laughs> gangster movie. This is good. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. All right, pal, listen up. The bubble sort algorithm, she's a real simple one, but the worst case time complexity, that's a whole different story. You see, in the worst case, every element in the list got to be swapped. So the time complexity is going to be proportional to the square, the length of the list. Get it? Here's the Python <laughs> code to help you out. See if you follow along. There's some Python code with comments, by the way. See, in the worst case, the while loop is going to keep looping until there ain't no more swaps to be made. The inner loop, it's going to go through every element in the list. So the time complexity is going to be proportional to the square of the list. Get it? What do you think? <laughs> this is good. It's pretty fun, right? Yeah. So. All right. Anyway, well, I don't know. Uh, open, the the chat GP stuff is it's interesting. It's kind of scary, but it's it's also funny. But is the, does the algorithm work? Uh, I wonder. I haven't run it, but I, I think so. It looks like the right kind of, at least. First glance, it looks right, but um, I don't know. I could always go and copy the code and try to run it. What do you think? <laughs> Here, it's like too much brain. work. No. Oh, the indent. The indent is off. Uh, That's yeah. I, I I'll you know what? I'll I'll run it and report report for next time. See if the <laughs> uh, the wise guys code is actually any good. Yeah, I'm I'm up for always up for volunteering you for work. Um, but <laughs> nice. Yeah. Anyway. Thanks. Yeah. That thanks. was funny. Yeah, it was. All right. See you later. Bye.